Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have Stephen Schwartz, who is a reporter, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a writer for the Huffington Post, and has also worked for the U.S. military, the Navy, National Geographic, and the list goes on and on. Stephen is a very impressive, impressive man, but his research is remarkable and so fascinating to me. He has done an immense amount of work in the realm of remote viewing. And not only remote viewing, kind of like what they did in the CIA back in the 50s and 60s, but remote viewing into the past, remote viewing to find archaeological sites that nobody could find. And that has been proven that he's been able to do that in Egypt and many other places around the world with his remote viewers and being able to remote view the future. And that is the most fascinating part of this whole conversation. But I need you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Stephen Schwartz. I'd like to welcome to the show, Stephen Schwartz. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing right well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm fascinated with your work, the research you've done over the years, uh, the books you've written, and I've never had anybody on the show specifically talking about remote viewing before, and you are the expert in it. You've done so much with it in, in, the, in the terms of your life. Can you tell me, first, first question, what made you get interested in this kind of research and this kind of work? Well, I woke up when I was 24. Okay. Um, through a set of synchronicities. I uh, was... I had been working for National Geographic. I got drafted. I came out, uh, went to New York. I was a screenwriter. Was working for a, a company there. Was doing a movie. And um, through a series of very odd events, I got introduced to the Edgar Casey material. And I decided uh, when I was first taken there, I just randomly pulled off the shelf 
one of his readings in these little green notebooks. And it was a reading given in 1936 for a woman that said she had been a member of the Essene community at Kerbet Qumran and uh, a teacher of astrology. And uh, Alex, I can tell you that your hair can stand on end. <laughs> because the last thing that I had done for geographic uh, before I went into the service was research on the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I was pretty knowledgeable about the Dead Sea Scrolls and I knew in 1936, first of all, nobody knew that there wasn't a scene community at Kerbet Qumran. Second of all, nobody knew that women were a part of it. And third of all, no one knew that they were interested in astrology. Hmm. So I sort of read this and thought to myself, where in the world did this guy get this information? How could he know this 11 years before a Bedouin tribes boy was chucking a rock in a cave and heard something go clunk and went down and found what we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls and the excavations that were done subsequently revealed that women were part of the community and the scrolls themselves are obsessed with astrology. So how could he possibly have known that 11 years before anybody else in the world knew that? Where did he get that information? And that really led me to start what has become my life's work in a way, which is the study of consciousness. And I decided that I would study the readings and I would read them all and I would start at the first one and go all the way to the end. As far as I know, I'm the only person who's ever done that except for Gladys Davis, the woman who took down, who was the archivist. And um, in 1968, that was in 1965, and then in 1968, because Casey kept saying, well, other people could do this, I thought, well, let's see if that's true. So I built a, a, in my back garden in Virginia Beach, I built a grid out of rope on the ground and I would bury uh, mason jars with things in them or uh, 35 millimeter film canisters with things in them. And I would make a mimeograph, that's how old it we're talking about, Mm -hmm. of this grid and send it out to people all over the world and say to them, in one of these squares there, I started out with 12 and eventually became 144 squares. Um, in one of these squares, I have buried something. Can you locate it? And if you can locate it, would you please mark it on the, the mimeograph sheet I sent you? And then would you please describe for me what is buried there? So first location, then description, and I discovered people could do it. So what exactly is remote viewing? Remote viewing is accessing non-local consciousness to acquire non-locally sourced information. So is that, I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with Edgar Casey's work and, and for everybody listening, can you explain a, just a, a quick bite on who Edgar Casey was? Well, Edgar Casey was a man in Kentucky. He was born in post-Civil War Kentucky. Um, he was a 
family were evangelical fundamentalists. Um, he never got past the eighth grade. He trained to become a photographer. And then he lost his voice. And he went to a, uh, a, a kind of, not conference, but a meeting with a hypnotist who was holding it and he volunteered to be the subject and um, began to tell the hypnotist what he needed to do to get his voice back and he did and so he began in uh, uh, in the late 19th century uh, he died in 1946 I think 45 46 he gave uh, about 15,000 readings. Uh, he would go into a trance state and, uh, and then he said, he contacted his higher self, what religion would call the soul, what I would call the eternal self. This is the aspect of consciousness that is not in physical space-time. Part of the issue is the idea of the continuity of consciousness. That is, you existed prior to incarnating. Uh, you're, you had a, an eternal self that existed, and it manifested a personality which incarnated, and uh, you had life. And then upon your physical death, uh, that personality information architecture became part of the eternal self's information architecture. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, um, and then after a period of time for reasons that are particular to you, you chose to manifest another personality and uh, physically incarnate it. Um, so all of the research, the near-death research, for instance, there are about over 13 million people in the United States have had a near-death experience. The mediumship, people channeling supposedly dead people, the remote viewing research, the reincarnation research, all of that research is about studying the non-local aspect of consciousness. Can you, can you explain what non-local aspect of consciousness is exactly? Well, I cannot tell you what consciousness is, nor can anybody else. Right. But what I can tell you is it seems very clear from the research, and I need to emphasize with you, uh, Alex, that I am a data person. I'm not interested in, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theoretician, I don't speculate. What I care about is objectively verifiable uh, hard data. So I'm an experimentalist. And if you look at the experimental data of, in those wide range of fields, what you discover is that the evidence that there is an aspect of consciousness that is not physiologically based is simply irrefutable. I mean, materialism which arose as a result of the Council of Trent in the 
uh, 1500s, uh, which split consciousness from science, and, and materialism became the dominant paradigm, the idea that consciousness is entirely grounded in your brain, dead meat, no brain, no consciousness. That's just not true. I mean, just on the basis of the evidence, it's not true. And that instead, what we're talking about is there is an aspect of consciousness that is not physiologically based, that it is, that is, it is not dependent on your brain. Your brain has a role in letting non-local consciousness data become conscious in space-time, but that consciousness is not, does not exist solely because you have a brain. And um, so I began doing this research with the grid. I originally called it distant viewing because the people that I was getting to do it were scattered all over the world, They're just people I knew. Uh, the word remote viewing, which is, by the way, a terrible term, was coined by uh, uh, one of the remote viewers named Ingo Swan. It's, as I say, a terrible term because it has nothing to do with viewing and remoteness is not the issue. So, so can you explain to me the actual process? So when you send somebody, you know, into research, let's say you send me this thing, do I get into a meditative state? Do I just take a guess? How, how does, what's the process? Well, uh, actually, I'm glad you brought meditation up because the key to the whole business is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. Okay. People have been doing remote viewing, I mean, what we would call today remote viewing, for thousands of years. The oldest recorded remote viewing we have, and it was done essentially exactly as we would do it today, is in the 46th chapter of Herodotus's, he was the founder of history, recording history, Herodotus' Histories of the World, and it involves uh, Croesus, the king of the Lydians, uh, you know, we know as rich as Croesus because he coined money. He was the first person to coin money. And he thought he was going to be attacked by the uh, Persians in what is now Iran. And uh, and they were big and he was relatively small. Lydia was a smaller kingdom. And so he was very concerned, what should he do? And he appointed a group of, of friends, staff, to go out to the seven oracles of the Greek world. There were seven oracles of individuals who basically did remote viewing. And the only one we know about is uh, the Oracle of Delphi, which was, uh, uh, these were young girls, uh, Pythonesses they were called, who would sit in a kind of tripod over a crack in the earth and hydrocarbons would bubble up, which caused altered states of consciousness. Anyway, uh, so he t told these teams, they sent out to the seven uh oracles he said wait for the hundredth day and on the hundredth day and not before you go into the oracle and you ask the oracle what is Croesus son of Aleades doing what today we would call an outbound remote viewing 
And so the only one we know is the Oracle of Delphi because it was the correct one. And when he, when the, the team in Delphi, which was quite a distance away, went into the temple with the Pythonists, before they even asked the question, she said, well, I can, I can count the sands of time, that is the hundred days, and I see the great sea, that is they had to come by ship to get there, and I see a great urn, bronze urn and a great bronze lid and a, um, a tortoise and a hare being cut up and thrown into the pot of boiling water. That didn't make any sense to him at all, of course. And But they wrote it all down as they were told to do. And they went back to, to uh, Croesus. And what they, of course, had not known was that Croesus on the hundredth day thought, what can I do that no one would think a king would be doing? Because if they said, well, he's sitting on his throne issuing edicts, well, I mean, that's a king, what, you know, of course. Right. So he had a tripod brought into his courtyard of his palace and a fire built and a big bronze urn brought in, hung from the tripod and with a bronze lid and he cut up a tortoise and a hare and threw it into the pot of water. And so when the Delphi team came back and the embassy and, and told him what the Oracle of Delphi had said, well, he bowed down and gave obeisance because that was exactly right. <laughs> and that recorded by Herodotus, who, as I say, is considered the father of recorded history. Um, and he wrote it in the 46th chapter. That's exactly a remote viewing. They can call it that, of course. So I would, call, I would actually call all of this non-local perception. So let me ask you, is this, does remote viewing have anything to do with the Akashic records and connecting to those records? What Casey called the Akashic records, I would call the non-local information architecture. It is the, the two great questions for which I cannot answer. I cannot give you an answer, nor can anybody else, by the way, are what is consciousness and what is information? Now, there are lots of people that will tell you what information is in space-time, but we know from, for instance, the reincarnation research that th people bring things across lives, and so where is that information? We know that mediums provide information about the location or description of things that no one in the world knows at the time that they do it, and they... they they go to the place or whatever and check and it's there. Where is that information? Or in the case of the work that I did or that I do, which is I started out doing in archaeology because it was pure triple blind. Everybody agreed they didn't know the answer. So if I could get a remote viewer to describe the location, just like the grid, and then describe what I was going to find, um, the question was, well, where did they get that information? Where was it? Where is it stored? Yeah, well, stored is perhaps not, that's a physical term. Sure. But in any case, what we know is that um, 
there is this aspect of consciousness which is independent of physiology. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We know that you can get access to it. That we know that from the, this is again all from research. We know that um, like all other human skills, it's a kind of um, bell curve. That is, there's a few people who are really, really gifted at that, like Edgar Cayce or Stefano Sovietsky or, you know, people like that. Um, so there's a few people that are really gifted at it, just like there are a few people that are really gifted at playing the violin or, or doing physics. There's a few people who just can't seem to get it. And most people fall somewhere in between. About 11% of the population are really good at it. But in any case, uh, what we discover from the research, again, is that meditators do better than non-meditators routinely. And that's why they teach meditation in martial art dojos, Tibetan lamasaries, Hindu temples, uh, you know, all over the world. If you look at all the world's religions, you will see that they all have some technique for developing meditation. And the reason they do that is that being able to go into meditation allows you to focus your consciousness so that the neurophysiological stimulus that dominates most of your thinking, it's hot, it's cold, it's light, it's dark, uh, it's smelly, it smells good, whatever. Most of our thinking is tied up with sensory impressions. Oh, I saw this woman and she was a beautiful woman, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, what you want is that to slide into the background so that you can become aware of what in religion they call the still small voice, but I would call the non-local aspect of consciousness. You open to non-local awareness and, um, and you're able to get any kind of information you want. I mean, that's part of what freaks people out is that there are no secrets. <laughs> okay, so you you mentioned something in regards to archaeology, which I found really interesting. What you did some amazing work in archaeology. You helped find, or or can you explain to me what kind of work you did in the archaeo in the art? Well, I, I, the reason I got interested in archaeology is I come out of an anthropological background, and at the time that I began, which is uh, in the late sixties. One of the big issues in archaeology was where to look. Because most archaeological finds were done, uh, occurred serendipitously. You know, a farmer was plowing a field and found a tomb, or a road crew was digging an underpass and came across a temple or whatever. So most of this was done serendipitously. And the big issue that they were talking about at that time in archaeology was, how do we know better where to look? So I thought, well, that's very attractive. And I, as I told you, I had been doing this grid experiment in my back garden successfully. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I can use uh, distant viewing, remote viewing, non-local perception, whatever. 
uh, I can use it to locate archaeological sites. Just like the grid. I'll get them to locate it on the map, make me a little drawing on the map, and then give me a description of what I'll find that's there. And then we'll go do the field work. And before we do the field work, we'll have, um, I designed it, the protocol so that there would be an electronic survey of the same area that remote viewers had picked to see whether an electronic sensing device like a side scan sonar, proton precession magnetometer, ground penetrating radar, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whether you could find this same site electronically and in all instances you could not. Um, so that, that, and then the second thing was once we've done the electronic survey, then we go do the field work and it's not a search technique. We just go exactly to the place that they draw. And if it's underwater, I give, I would go out in a little boat and, or a big boat and I give them a buoy and I say, when we get over the site, drop the buoy. Or if it's on land, I say, here's a wooden stake. When we get to the place, just put the stake in the ground. You can go to my website, uh, stephanaschwartz.com, and see a couple of movies. I make movies of these things. You can watch a guy locate a buried building in a buried city out of 1,200 square kilometers in the middle of the desert. Wow. And, descri and describe objects down to 5 sixteenths of an inch. That's remarkable. So when you're remote viewing, you're sitting there... <clears throat> basically in a meditative state and you have an intention of what you're looking for and that information kind of is downloaded into your into your mind essentially yes basically it's like doing a google search right it's a google it's a google search of uh, but the internet's much larger where you're google searching <laughs> yeah it's the non-local google is the non-local google so it's the cloud if you will <laughs> well it's again i i don't know what information is and uh, it clearly exists outside of space-time, right. so I don't know how to describe it exactly. But what is clear from the experimental research is that everything that ever happened right. is part of the great non-local Google information database. Which is what the Hindus were talking about 6,000 years ago with the Akashic yeah. Records. That's basically. what they mean by the Akashic Record, exactly. Exactly. And then Edgar, Edgar Casey kind of brought that back into, yes, into popular understanding. Uh, and yeah. he was doing his work. It, this is absolutely fascinating. You can train people, anybody to do this, correct? Yeah. I've, I've tested 23,000 people. 20, and, and the majority of them are able to do it at different levels. As I said, some people are much better than other people like, well, an example, George McMullen, a guy with an eighth grade education who was a parts manager at a Chrysler dealership up in Nanaimo, Canada in British Columbia, who was d demonstrated over and over again. I mean, we found Cleopatra's palace. We found Mark Anthony's palace. We found the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We found buried ships. We found one of Columbus's caravels from his fourth voyage. I mean, on and on and on and on. And here's this guy with an eighth grade education in a small town up on Vancouver Island um, who could do this. He could locate things on a map. Or Hella Hammond, who was a, 
a woman who was internationally known as a fine arts photographer who was originally brought in by Russell Targ, uh, another researcher, to be a control because he didn't think she was any good at it and she didn't think she was any good at it and she turned out to be fantastic at it. And what is what are the the archaeological establishment have to say about this work? Well, in in one case, for instance, I wanted to, this is uh, in the Alexandria project. I wrote a book about it, the Alexandria project. You can get it off Amazon. Um, I wanted to dive in the eastern harbor of Alexandria. Alexandria is the second largest city in Egypt. It's right up on the Mediterranean littoral. And uh, the remote viewers had told me Cleopatra's palace and Mark Anthony's palace and the lighthouse of Pharos and Pompey's pillar, which were known things to have existed, but nobody knew where they were. They were all underwater because the, uh, the uh, tectonic plate had had shifted and sunk and the ancient city of, of Alexandria had extended about 30 feet further out into the sea than it did at the modern time. And nobody knew this, of course, at any of this. And I wanted to do this diving and so I went to the government of Egypt uh, in the person of the governor of Egypt, Mohammed Hilmi, and the head of the archaeology uh, division in, in, in government in Cairo, to ask permission uh, to, to do this dive. Nobody had done it. And uh, the archaeologists at the university at Alexandria, the, it has a big archaeology department, We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They just thought the whole thing was crap Mm -hmm. and said, you know, that's nonsense. You can't do that. Nobody can do that. That's just crap. I mean, they were a little more polite than that, but actually um, we can get even fouler. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Governor Hilmi said to me, uh, you know, they don't want you to do it. And I said, well, you know, what would it take to get you to say yes? And he said to these archaeologists, what would it get you to say yes? And they said, well, you'd have to prove to us you could do it. I said, okay. <laughs> so they said, uh, well, I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want you to locate a buried building of our choice in a buried city out in the desert about 40 kilometers from Alexandria. I said, okay. And so we went out there early one morning. I took George and Hella. There were no maps, so I couldn't do the map part. There was no map of the right scale to be able to do it. So it was, you know, we took them out one at a time. One stayed back and one I went in the car with me. We drove out in literally out into the desert. You can see it, as I say. You can watch everything I'm telling you. It's it's all on the movie on my website. And this archaeologist says to George, "I want you to locate a buried building in the buried city of Maria, and I want you to locate a building that has tiles or mosaics." 
and uh, and I want you to tell me exactly where it is and what I'm going to find, because he was going to do the dig, not me. So they haven't found. So they, they don't. They haven't found this. They don't know where it no, is. No, they don't know where it is. Now, they know it exists possibly in this giant area. Yes, in this Got area it. buried under the under the sand dunes. Got it. So we walk around for a couple of hours, and finally George says, okay, I know where I want to go. And he kneels down in the sand, and he says to this archaeologist, this is where I want to go, and uh, this is all right. And the guy says, okay. <clears throat> so we get in the car, and we drive. George says, go left, go right. And the archaeologist and all his graduate students are in the, another car. They're all snickering away. And we get to this place that George says, okay, stop here. And he gets out and they get out and they're following behind us. And it's all being filmed. And uh, George walks along for a while, little while and he says, okay, I'm walking over a wall. That's the building we're looking for. And I said, you're walking over a wall. And he says, yeah, there's a wall. And then there's just three rooms and um, it's about three to four feet down. That's and it. It was just like three or four feet. That was it. D down under the yeah. ground. Right. So it's not that it's not like hard to get to. No, 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 no. And um, and he says this is a Christian building. It was built by Christians. And you could just hear him giggling and laughing away out there. And he and he says, and there are these little tiles there. They're uh, uh, white, uh, red and black. And they're smooth on one, polished on one side, and they have a kind of white plaster on the other side. And he draws a little picture of it. And so I go over to the archaeologist, and he says, <laughs> oh, boy, are you in for a, a big embarrassment. I said, why? And he said, well, we did a electronic survey of this exact area. It was published. It's a part of the published academic record done by the University of Guelph. And they had ground penetrating radar and there's nothing at the place that you pick. And even if there was anything, it couldn't possibly be Christian. It would have to be Roman. And I don't believe a word of it. So we brought Hella in and Hella goes, uh, same thing, same place. She says, oh, yeah, there's three rooms. And then in the middle room, there's some kind of a clay column that was built much later. And it has something to do with heat. I don't exactly understand, but it's a, it's a clay column in the middle room. So she goes away. We bring George back. I say, George, here's four stakes. Can you stake out the corners of the room? Now, think about this. Stake out the corner, not the room of the building. Right. Corners mm -hmm. are very important because if you dug down and you didn't and there was no floor and you didn't get the walls, you would never know the building was there. So you have to get the corners. Right. Mm -hmm. So we he says, OK, and he puts in stakes and uh, and then I say to the archaeologist, a guy named Fauzi Fakarani, OK, you get your guys in, start digging. And he said, well, they're not going to find anything. You know, I mean, this is all a waste of time. And we start digging. And at three feet, a few inches, we find the top of the walls. They are, George, out of, uh, I think it was 1,700 square kilometers, 
has located a building down to uh, his, his wow. uh, he's 28 inches off. And we keep digging. Uh, when we get to the, uh, the middle room, we find the big clay column that Hella had described. It turns out it was a kind of Bedouin oven that was built after the city had been abandoned. The Bedouin tribes people had moved in and they had built a, to bake bread on it. They'd build a fire around the clay and get very hot. And then they'd slap, uh, uh, you know, flour to make bread and the heat of the, of the column would cook the bread. But it was exactly as she described it. So what did they say? <laughs> well, no, no, I keep going. And we get down a little further and we find the tiles, red, white, and black. And we get a little further and we find the Christian concentra uh, consecration marks on the foundation. So it is a Christian building, not a Roman building or Egyptian, you know, it, it was, uh, uh, it had the tiles exactly as described. The rooms were exactly as described. They were exactly where they were placed. So it all worked. And so we went, I went back to Governor Helmy and said, okay, now what? And he said, now you have permission to go dive. And that's how we found Cleopatra's palace and Mark Anthony's palace and Pompey's pillar and this, uh, the lighthouse of Pharos. And I'm assuming at this point, the, the establishment of archaeology, you know, the archaeological establishment, I'm assuming started to take you more seriously at this point. Oh, well, they were very happy for all the discoveries. And the, in, in a way, the, in a way, the most important thing we found was that we found the ancient seawall exactly as the, where the remote viewers had put it. And that revealed that the entire construct that they had built up about how the city was laid out was wrong because the city extended 30 further feet out into the sea than it does today. So, so the big question is, where is Atlantis, sir? Where's what? Atlantis. Oh, uh, well, uh, that I think is one of the areas where Edgar Casey was wrong. Oh, interesting. Interesting. There are two areas of the Edgar Casey readings that I believe are incorrect. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the Atlantis stuff, and the other is the Egyptian Ra-Ta stuff. And the reason is that we know from the experimental research that the intention and beliefs of the questioner influence very strongly the remote viewer. Mm. And so the people that ask him his questions about Atlantis were all Atlantis fanatics. Right. And so he, he describes this civilization that supposedly existed 10,500 years ago that built the pyramids. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not true. We know who built the pyramids. I mean, we literally know the guy that was the architect of it. We know mm -hmm. where he's buried. Um, there is no evidence for a high civilization that was able to fly, for instance, as he describes, mm -hmm. 10,500 years ago. Got it. And the reason, as I said, is that the people who asked the questions were fanatics and they influenced as you do. So the researchers intentions and attitudes have an effect 
on the ability of the remote viewer to get information because in the non-local, in the great Google in the sky, as it were, mm -hmm. inaccurate information is part of the, that's strongly believed, is part of the information architecture. Fair enough. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay, fair enough. Now, another thing that you that you've been talking about in other interviews is being able to remote view the future, uh, the 2040s, the 2050s, and and now even the 2060s. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that process is? Because we've been talking about finding things based on current information or, you know, finding something here locally now, but we haven't talked about the future or, or, you know, remote view in the future. What is the process to remote view the future and what are, let's go decade by decade. What did you find out about the 2040s? <laughs> that would take much more than one interview. <laughs> well, let's, let's, you know, let's do uh, the well, I'll give you, digest. I'll, I'll give you a sort of overview of it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Right. So I uh, I am working in government. Mm -hmm. I'm the special assistant to the chief of naval operations for research and analysis. I'm also working over with the National Security Council. Um, and I'm on the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation technology in the future. And on the Smithsonian discussion group on innovation technology in the future. So I'm part of the geopolitical world. And uh, this is 1976 when I left government. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, most people who were in that world thought we were going to have a nuclear war, either by accident or design. And in fact, were it not for one Soviet colonel who wouldn't push the button, we would have had a third world war. Right. So in any case, I, you know, I had a young daughter who had just been born, was a few years old. And um, I was very concerned about what her life would be like if we had a nuclear war. So I thought, well, okay, I will, uh, I'll see if people can remote view the future. We knew that there, we, they could do precognitive remote viewings of a few days or even weeks in the future, but could you go further into the future and get successful information? We expect to see when you do these big projects, not just describe a target, you know, I'm going to show you a target, would you describe it? That's that kind of standard laboratory protocol. And I've done thousands of those, but this is a much bigger deal. Mm -hmm. You're looking at much bigger things going on than describing um, a radar station in a photograph. Um, I, I began, I, I didn't want, I knew from doing research that if you get too far into the future, you don't understand what they're saying. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. 
Jules Verne, who wrote uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, wrote a second, that was very successful, a hugely successful book. This is in the 1850s. He uh, wrote a second book. It was about Paris in the 1960s. And uh, in it, he says, uh, corporations dominate the economy in Paris. Women work in corporations, unheard of. Uh, people drive around in internal combustion engines. And business correspondence is transmitted by facsimile machines. And the city of Paris is defined by a huge metal tower. Wow. Which doesn't exist at the time. And he sends this to his publisher and his publisher writes him back and says, Jewel, um, I'm your friend as well as your editor. And the best thing I can tell you to do is to put this away and don't talk about it because it'll make you sound like a crazy person. Nobody would believe any of this. None of this is ever going to happen. How can you possibly think that women are going to become part of corporations? Or I don't have any idea what a facsimile machine is. But anyway, this whole thing is nonsense. Just put it away and forget about it, which is what he does. And in the uh, uh, 19, I guess 1980s, I may, be, I may have that date not right. Mm hmm published in 91, anyway, 19, I think 1980s, um, an heir of Jules Verne's inherits a farm that was his, and he goes up to this property that he has inherited, and he goes into a barn, and under the barn he sees a little safe, and he says to the farmer, what's in the safe? And the guy says, I have no idea, you can't open it, I couldn't open it. My father couldn't open it. So I have no idea what's in the safe. So he gets a locksmith to come up and he gets it open. And in the uh, safe is this correspondence I've just described and the manuscript of the book. And of course, everything that Jules Verne described was correct. Wow. He had viewed the future, right? Pretty, pretty far ahead. Yes. And he was so far ahead that nobody could understand what he was talking about. So when I was started to do this, I thought, well, I can't go too far in the future because if I go too far, I won't understand what they're talking about. Right. So I thought, well, I'll go to 2050. So in 1978, I began what has become now a 20 some year experiment. Um, I got um, 4,000 people scattered all over the world, many different countries, to remote view the same date in the year 2050. So what, today is the 9th of November. So if we were doing this, I would say to you, Alex, I want you to go forward in time to the 9th of November in the year 2050 or ultimately 2060. And um, are you incarnate? Well, if you're not, 
see it through somebody else's eyes and describe for me, you know, what do you see? How do people live? What's what's medicine like? But the big question that I started with, because I was concerned about the war, was, has there been a nuclear war? And they said, no. And I said, well, then the world must be safer. And they said, no, the world is much more dangerous. And I said, really, why? I couldn't imagine. They said, because of terrorism. Now, in 1978, when I started this, the only terrorism was the Protestant Catholic fight going on in Ireland that, you know, anybody was paying attention to. That was before the uh, Iran. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before any of that stuff happened. Yeah. So I just didn't know what to make of that. And I said to them, well, what's the Soviet Union like now? And they said, well, it doesn't exist. I said, what? What do you what do you mean it doesn't exist? They said it doesn't exist. And I went around to friends of mine in the geopolitical world uh, and said to them, I've got this information that says that by 2050, the Soviet Union doesn't exist. Can you think of any reason? I mean, how could that possibly be true? And, and um, uh, I've got to take this. Can we stop for a minute? I'll pause it for a second. Sure. Boom. All right, continue okay. with what you're saying. Okay, so I went to them and said, you know, can you think of any reason why the Soviet Union wouldn't exist? I mean, think about it. We were at that time, the, the, the whole geopolitical structure was the two great superpowers, right. blah, 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 you know. And they said to me, that's just nonsense. You know, what are you talking about? That, of course, the Soviet Union isn't going to disappear. I mean, you know, space aliens are going to come down and rip it up and take it away. Wait, that's just nonsense. But of course, Christmas Day, 1991, Soviet Union ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, well, all right, let's talk about health care. And they said, you know, what's it like? And they describe a very different kind of health care. And I said, well, uh, are people then healthier? And they said, well, except there's going to be a series of pandemics. And I said, really? And they said, yes, the first one will be a blood disease which crosses over from primates to humans in Africa, and it's going to kill millions of people. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I went to a friend of mine, and this is 78, 79, and I went to a friend of mine who was the deputy director of National Institutes of Health and said to him, do you have any idea what about a blood disease that crosses over from primates to humans in Africa and that could kill millions of people? And he said to me, Stefan, whatever it is you're smoking, quit. That wasn't because that far ahead. Of, that wasn't that far ahead. No, 1981. We get HIV, AIDS, kills 35 million people. Then we get SARS. Then we get H5N1. And now we have COVID. And we're going to have more because the viruses and bacteria are mutating as a result of climate change to accommodate to new circumstances. But in any case, that's what they told me at the time. Nobody believed me. 
-hmm. The other thing that they started telling me, uh, I was, my lab at that time was in Los Angeles and I was doing a session with someone the first time. And I said, well, you know, they were, I, go forward in time to 2050. Where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. I said, oh, okay, what's Los Angeles like? And they said, oh, well, it's very different. I said, why? And they said, well, for starters, um, a lot of Santa Monica and Venice is underwater. And uh, uh, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach, it's, it's all underwater. And I went to a friend of mine who was uh, one of the climatologists, um, leading climatologists in the government and said, can you tell me any reason why the, the water would flood over uh, Los Angeles or Hermosa Beach or Manhattan Beach? And, and he said, no, there is no reason. That's just nonsense. But of course, climate change is right. now, if you look at the projections, is now doing exactly that. I was in Florida and I got some people to do remote viewing of 2050 and they said, well, most of Florida is gone. Wow. I, said, I said, what? And they said, oh, well, from Fort Myers down, it, it's all gone. And I thought, really? And I went to friend uh, who had another friend who was in the government in Florida and said, do you know any reason why well, yeah, of course. Florida? And they just said, no, come on. I, I hear a know. theme. There's a theme here going. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So climate change, all this stuff about climate change. I'd never heard of climate change until 1991 when I read a paper in the American Scientist about ice coring which suggested that uh, th there had been climate change and that climate change was beginning to occur. And now, of course, I mean, you know, we, Everybody we've got it almost every day. But at the time, 1977, uh, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, nobody knew. No, it wasn't I didn't a thing. know what to make of that. The thing. other thing was that, I mean, there's so many things they they said to me, I said, well, you know, what is society like now? And they said, well, it's being driven uh, by um, by these electronic programs. And I said, electronic programs, how are they doing it? This was before the internet really took off. And, and uh, I, I've forgotten uh, Netscape started in 90. Yeah, some, well, 80, uh, yeah somewhere in there. Early 90s. Anyway, yes. so in 1978, 79, you know, I bought my first computer in 1978. Um, uh, uh, Apple II with 64 kilobits of memory. And these people are talking about, oh, well, no, no, you can talk to anybody all anywhere in the world. And that's the way people communicate. And, and of course, none of that made any sense. But of course, now it's, you know, makes perfect sense. So that's what they're saying. And that's in 2050. 
that that was 2050 yeah the 2060s so the 2060s which is the data that i'm now analyzing the big thing about the 2060s that really stands out for me is that between 2040 and 2045 there's going to be a really seismic cataclysmic change in human society and I'm not quite sure why yet. I think it's actually a confluence of events. Climate change, the end of the internal combustion machine engine, the uh, shift uh, as a result of climate change. There, there are going to be big migrations in the United States away from the coasts because of too much water out of the southwest because there's not enough water and the temperature is too high and out of the central states because of cataclysmic uh, weather events like tornadoes so there are going to be these three big migrations and they're going to radically change society the society the 20 the 2060s talk about this 2040 2045 event i don't as i say it's i don't think it's a single event I think it's a confluence of things, but in any case, they describe themselves as being on the other side of it. So by 2060, um, whatever it is that happens, people have begun to accommodate for it. They describe where they live very differently. It's much more minimalist. It reminds me more of Scandinavia, maybe, or Holland, the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And this is, you're speaking of the U.S.? The, the U.S., yes. Okay. Uh, I asked if the United States still exists because I wasn't sure that it would exist. And they said, well, it still exists in form, but real power has moved down to the states and groups of states. And you can see it happening. Hmm. You can see the secession movement that's growing up amongst the right wing. And then also you see a growing um, change in consciousness in the blue states who are tired of the stupidity of the red states and their unwillingness to deal with climate change. You know? So I, I think Washington, Oregon, North California uh, are going to become a group. Right, Texas. If, if you and look at the research data, you can see that, uh, I mean, this sounds very partisan and political. That's not, that, that's not the way to think of it. It's just data. Mm -hmm. If you look at uh, governance uh, across the United States, what you see is that Republican governance is always inferior to Democratic governance if your calibration is social well-being, mm. which is what I care about. Because in my understanding now of all of this research I've been doing. About 20 years ago, I started looking at if um, if we can do this in a laboratory with a single person or a group of people, how does that play out socially? So I wrote a book called The Eight Laws of Change after about 20 years of research about how do you really create social transformation that that focuses on well-being. And the 2060s uh, describe a world which is 
uh, very different, largely, I think, because in the present day, the United States is really a country that has only one social priority, and that's profit. Mm -hmm. Everything is driven by profit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Not well-being. And that you can see again in those states where well-being does play a role that they do better than the states where that doesn't take place. Um, Red states, for every dollar they put into the treasury and taxes, they take out more than a dollar. Blue states, put a, for every dollar they put in, they take out less than a dollar. So I think the red state, the blue states are going to get tired of financing the failure of the red states. There's going to be these big migrations, mm. which are radically going to alter health care. Uh, because dealing with the kind of uh, internal migrations, you know, I spoke at a medical conference and I said to these doctors, who were asking me about this, I said, if you lived in a town of, say, 50,000 people and 5,000 people suddenly showed up in your town who were immigrants, internal migrants, where would you house them? Where would they go to the bathroom? What kind of health care? 11 percent of whatever are diabetics. Would you have the insulin to take care of them? And they said, no, we wouldn't be prepared for any of that. But that's what they are describing is these migrations, these changes, moving out of cities, smaller communities, this big event between 2040, 2045, which changes society fundamentally. Around the world, not just in the United States. Not just in the United States, but around the world, but particularly in the United States. Um. Is there, is there a superpower in 2060? Not in the way that we have thought about it in the traditional, you know, uh, bipolar Past. world. China has become a much bigger force. Uh, the United States less. Um, is, there, you know, is there any wars between now and then? There have to be many. Um, well, there are localized wars like the Ukrainian war, mm-hmm. but not world wars. I don't see, I don't get any descriptions about world wars. It, let me ask you a question because there's so many, there, there's such a shift right now in consciousness throughout the world. I mean, more people are awakening, more people are connecting yeah. spiritually, the more people are meditating, uh, more people are doing yoga, more people are just trying to connect to source more than ever before. How is that evolution uh, showing up in 2050, 2060, as far as just the consciousness of humanity? Well, people are, uh, uh, it's it's a question of priorities and values. Um, The 2050 and 2060 people describe, particularly the 2060s, the 2050s, I think, and I'm going back, I'm, I'm just beginning to look at this. I think the 2050s are still kind of um, in shell shock for whatever happened between 2040 and 2045. And 10 years later, the 2060s, that's, uh, um, 
they are describing a world which in which they talk about this as in the past. So I, uh, but basically what they're describing is a world in which uh, people don't travel as much, Air, uh, airplanes particularly, uh, there is rail has come back more powerfully, uh, the end of the internal combustion engine. And uh, what I find particularly interesting is they describe you know, the way we are going at uh, the EV movement, the uh, electric vehicle movement, mm -hmm. is recreating the gas station model that is charging stations. Mm -hmm. But uh, the remote viewers about the future describe that the roads charge the cars. Right. And there is, in fact, research going on at, at Cornell. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Goodness. Bless you, right? bless you. you may have to edit this. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that was. Anyway, that the roads charge the thing, which changes the whole battery issue. Uh, and I think that's probably what's going to happen. That's what they're predicting. And I think that's probably what's going to happen. It's just an infrastructure situation. Yeah, the technology yeah. is existing now. I've seen the tech, the, that technology. It's, it is doable, but it's just infrastructure. It's the, yeah. same, it's the same problem that we've had from the beginning: is breaking down the old systems that are not serving us anymore, like the, the like the combustion engine, and and chain you know, moving the ship, moving the political yeah. gears, moving the financial gears to make it all make sense. We all can do it if we want to. It's just yes. It's a question of priorities, right? Exactly. Well, let me ask you then: What is the monetary situation like? Are we still using paper money? Is gold the no. thing? Is Bitcoin and crypto? What, no. What, what, is what, what they describe is that's actually a question I ask. Uh, currency still exists, I think, but when I say to people, if you go into a store, how do you pay for something? They tell me you either pay with your fingertip, uh, an iris picture, or some of them describe a chip that's incorporated in your wrist that, uh, that you use, or you use what sounds like a kind of advanced version of the iPhone. But no, very interesting. Uh, people, when I say, well, does money still exist, cash money? And they say, well, yeah, sort of, but nobody uses it. Got it. Well, it's kind of, that's kind of today. Like most. Yeah, yeah most, we're, you can see we're moving toward that. Yeah, cash exactly. is not a a thing. I, I, yeah, I, I got, not exactly. I've got, I got two $20 bills I've been carrying around in my, right. on my money clip for, I don't know, maybe two or three months. Right. Exactly. And unless I'm in a space where I need that, that doesn't accept yeah, a, exactly. a credit card or I just use my phone and Apple pay it or something like that. Yeah, I, I use my PayPal debit card. Right. Exactly. So, so it's, so still credit. So who is the financial powerhouse uh, or is there such a thing in in 2060 
Well, I haven't right, asked the question that way, so I'm not. Uh, well, I mean, like obviously, the U.S. is right now the most powerful financial uh, country. No, no, that we are still powerful. Yeah. China has become much more powerful. Um, countries which have done the best preparing for climate change, New Zealand, Holland, you know, Europe, they've pretty much made a commitment to get rid of the internal combustion engine by 2035. Well, if you think about it, that's, you know, it's less not that far away. years from now. Yeah. California just said that. I think yes, California exactly. just said yeah. exactly. it's the only state. Yeah. So what you're seeing is the blue state, red state split is becoming yeah. greater and greater. I, I did not understand it when I began doing the research. I, clearly enough myself, I didn't anticipate how powerful it would become. So I didn't ask a lot of questions exactly framed that way. But what they do say is that, as I said, power has devolved down to states or groups of states. And I think that's because the blue states are doing a, a better preparation for climate change than the red states. And they're also getting tired of paying for the failure of the red states. Is there any place in the U.S. that will be more safe as far as geographically uh, from climate change? Yes. Um, in the Northwest. In the Northwest? Really? And I think also, I haven't been up to Maine to do a lot of remote viewing, but I suspect the northern latitudes in general, um, and um, I mean, we can already see the, the drying up of the Colorado River, uh, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, the huge water problems are beginning. Um, is that going to be a major issue in the future? Like yes, water wars? Water is going to become, uh, what I say is water is destiny. Hmm going to become a huge deal. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Cities like Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque, Vegas, I think are going to become basically uninhabitable. Uh, somebody will be there, but, but they will not be hugely growing cities. Although, as of today, people are still moving there, just like people are still moving into Florida. But because, well, in the in the desert states, there there's water there. Vegas is a desert without yeah without the Colorado well, I mean, River. And the Colorado River problem is a huge problem. And Lake Mead, Lake Powell, I mean, and the hydroelectric is becoming a problem. And so, again, what I see is three big internal migrations away from the coasts, both river coasts, lake coasts, um, sea coasts. Uh, I mean, cities like New Orleans, I think, are largely doomed. Hawaii. Um, parts of Hawaii, yes. Uh, so away from where there's too much water and away from cities and states where there's not enough water and where temperature has become an issue. I mean, there, 
I've seen studies that talk about phoenixes having 100 days a year with temperature over 114. Jeez, I've been in 119 at Palm Springs, and my God, it was it's like living in. Yeah. I was there for a few hours, and I was dying. Yes, exactly. Like, how can you live in that situation? Yes, you can't. That's the point. So you got all these people that are moving in to these areas still, who are then going to be moving out. Um, there will be a multi-trillion-dollar collapse of real estate. Canada is going to be really great, looking good. <laughs> Canada is going to be looking good. Yes, yes. Yeah, Toronto is going to be a place where you could actually go and live. Because everyone's like, oh, I would love to move to Canada. It's too damn cold. But in 30, 40 years, it might actually be just yeah. right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I live in the Pacific Northwest on an island. And um, we are already seeing substantial climate change occurring just long, uh, warm falls, which unlike anything, I've been here 15 years and the weather this last year has been significantly different than in the preceding years. Um, Stefan, let me ask you is, and I think I asked you this, but I want to ask you again, maybe in a different way. Is there any large spiritual awakening and what part does religion even have in this 2050s, 2060s? Oh, well, different, two, different, two different questions. Yeah, two different questions. Yeah. Uh, religion, people are falling away from it by the truck, by the bus load. Uh, and that's because Christianity in the United States has become largely a white supremacy, male dominant, Christo fascist cult. And so young people, particularly, are leaving the church. Uh, in great numbers. That's one thing. Spiritually, or in terms of consciousness, I think there is a, an awakening that takes place. I'm, uh, it's the, the 2050s, 2060s describe it, but I can see it happening now. I just wrote a paper on, on how we are beginning to recognize that we live not in the kind of Abrahamic world of the Bible where we have dominion over the earth and it's kind of like we got left a bank account by a rich uncle. <laughs> and instead, we begin to recognize that we live in a matrix of consciousness and that how the matrix, how we deal with the matrix has an effect not only on the matrix, but on us. I mean, just for instance, take an example of the bees. Mm -hmm. uh, 90% of our food is is uh, pollinated by bees and they're dying in huge numbers. So it's going to become a big issue. But we begin to see that that uh, research that dogs, gorillas, octopuses and even plants all have consciousness mm -hmm. and learn things and can remember things and different kinds of consciousness, but all have consciousness and that we live in a matrix of consciousness. Hold on. Give me. Sure, 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 sure. Go ahead. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, do I want to refinance my house? <laughs> uh, yes. If it's in Florida, yes. <laughs> well, no, I, I did refinance it a year ago, 21 for 2.36%. I wouldn't let go of that. 
fixed rate for 30 years. No. And I always, yeah. You know, so, you were say, so you were saying in regards to the spirituality? Um, I, I don't think of it as spirituality. I would say there is a cultural awakening of consciousness to recognize that we live in a matrix of consciousness and that we must develop technologies which acknowledge that we must plan our businesses, our sciences, everything has got to be or reorganized to acknowledge the existence of the consciousness matrix because the technologies that we're using like carbon energy are destroying the matrix and therefore destroying us. And so what I see in the 2050s and 2060s, particularly the 60s, is that they have a consciousness of being in a matrix of consciousness. And in other, and in other words, they they really have a better understanding that they are conne- we're all connected and we all have yes, to think. All life is interconnected and interdependent. Exactly. So, so basically what our, our ancestors were doing on the on the plains, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, we're going back to that, but with a little bit more technology. Yes. yes. It is it it is fascinating. Um, I just had a curiosity, is because meat consumption is such an issue with global warming. Is that a thing? Is are people still? No. Is that, yeah, I'd love to, just if if you have any information about that. Meat consumption goes way down, and a, a laboratory made meat mm. based on plants comes forward. So it's but kind of I, where we're at, like where we're going now. Where, where you can see it happening. What what is what is happening is, and it, it's but it's not uniform across the country. Some states are waking up. They are recognizing that is the people in government. That universal health care, for instance, is is the way to go. That. Um, that uh, universal minimum income is the way to go, that uh, gender equality is the way to go. Um, And other states, uh, they're still dealing with, yeah, they're still stuck in white supremacy. Women are dominated by men. I mean, you just look at it with the uh, abortion issue. Sure, yeah. And this goes around the world as well, because right now, I mean, you could go oh, to countries, yeah. you could go to countries like in the Middle East who are saying everything you just said, and you know, yeah. women can't even walk the streets. So there's parts of the world that are going to be yes. more evolved than others. It's not going to be a global. No, it's not. Not one at least universal. Yeah, not at least at 2060. Hopefully in the future, but not right now. Well, maybe further on in the future, yes. But um, what I really get is. The, the 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 real fundamental answer to your question, which was uh, the, the way they described it was the United States still exists, but um, in form. But the real power has devolved down to states and groups of states. But still work together as a country if something yes, like if somebody was going to attack, if someone was going to yeah, attack. They're still working together in some ways as a country, but I get the sense Well, you know, I mean, Mississippi, for instance, I mean, if it weren't a part of the United States, it'd be a third world country. Correct. Or Alabama, 
You know, yeah, they're I mean, very poor states, correct. Not only poor, but they're so badly governed mm -hmm. that when you look at, you know, what I do, and you can go to uh, uh, academia.edu and get my papers, mm -hmm. or researchgate.com and get my papers, or Science Direct, or uh, PubMed, the National uh, Medical Library, all my papers are up there. Uh, and I've been doing research now, as I say, for over 20 years, looking at uh, social outcome data, because my interest is how do you foster well-being? And when you look at when you look at, I mean, for instance, a woman, a pregnant woman in Louisiana would do better to deliver her baby in Botswana, Africa, have a better chance of surviving both her and the baby than in most of Louisiana or Alabama wow. or Mississippi. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean, the, the, the social outcome data is horrifying. The mm -hmm. educational stuff. You know, we have a whole movement in the country to stop public education and turn it into a kind of indoctrination process. Mm. It's all very fascist. Uh, so some states, I think, are going to are going to go into crisis. You can already see as a result of the Dobbs decision that physicians, for instance, are moving to other schools because they can't get the training they want. You're, I think you're going to see a lots of young women, fertile young women, moving to states where they are treated as equals. So I think what we're going to see in 2060, I didn't actually ask the questions quite this way because I didn't, I didn't see it happening quite this way. Mm. That limitation is mine, not the viewers. Is that some states are going to prosper and do well, and some countries are going to prosper and do well. The Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, uh, New Zealand, they're going to prosper. Other countries, uh, Africa is going to become a much more powerful force than it is now. Um, Why is that, by the way? What changes? Because of raw materials and because it's got a growing population. And uh, there's going to be a mega, uh, how do, a mega, megagopolis that is going to grow up along the coast. Um, and as I say, the raw materials. China recognizes this and is, and with their uh, Belt and Road thing, is going to. They're pouring in huge amounts of money to try to establish themselves in African countries. We're not doing that, so. There's going to be a big shift geopolitically. As I say, China is going to become a much more powerful force. Um, you're going to see other countries, that, the kind of fascist countries, uh, Hungary, for instance, uh, Orban. Mm -hmm. All of that kind of governance is just inferior mm -hmm. because it produces inferior social outcomes. And so as this schism becomes greater and greater, we're going to see those countries which are embracing awakening and dealing with the matrix of consciousness and planning for it. 
they're going to prosper and um, make the conversion away from carbon energy. <coughs> and other countries are going to continue to make profit their only social priority. That's going to be the real determinant. And uh, they're going to go into crisis. Which is what's happening here in the United States. In the yeah, US. Exactly. And you're going to see these migrations. And corporations are, it's already happening. Corporations are changing. Yes. You know, the corporations of the 80s and 90s can't exist in the yes. same way in today's world because of yes. the new generation. The new generation just won't put up with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they want change. They want, cult, they want. Yes, yeah, you it, can it, see in this election that just happened, you know, the, the anti-abortionists or basically the anti-female equality people mm -hmm. made a major mistake. They thought they would get, Dobbs would get overturned and then they would pass all these laws at the state level and everybody would kind of forget about it and life would go on, but that's not what <laughs> happened. Nope. And so, um, so we're going to be very different in the future. And well, Stefan, I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I would love to have you back uh, to go deeper into this conversation because it is it is fascinating, uh, to say the least. I do truly appreciate your time. Uh, and, and I have a few questions I ask all my guests, really quick questions. What is your definition of living a good life? Are you asking me? Yes. These are questions I'm asking you personally. Uh, with every decision... And, oh, in fact, let me say this, because this is my out. Okay. Okay? Sure. Go for it. Culture is the result of individual choices. That's what creates culture. That's why the Japanese cook garlic differently than the Italians. Right? Mm -hmm. It's a result of individual choices. Therefore... Every day you make hundreds of little tiny choices. The toothpaste you buy, the toilet paper you buy, the gasoline you buy, whatever. And you buy it from those companies and that is of a kind of vote. I urge your readers or your listeners or viewers. Every day you make these little choices. Take the time to learn who you are doing business with. And whenever you are faced with one of these choices, at the moment that you have to make the choice, pick always the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being as you understand it in that moment. And tell 10 friends that you're doing it as a discipline and invite them to join you and tell 10 of their friends that you'll do it. And if the people that are listening or watching this show will commit to doing that, they will change the outcome of the 2024 election so that it fosters well-being. The key is every individual with every choice, you're either voting to foster well-being, compassionate, life-affirming well-being, or you are voting to support something else. And if you support compassionate, life-affirming well-being, you're on the right side and you will create a world which is compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being.
Stefan, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing and your books? Go to my website, stephanaschwartz.com. You go to Amazon and search on my books the, for, for relative to what I just said, The Eight Laws of Change. You go to academia.edu or researchgate.com or PubMed or Science Direct, and you can get my hundreds of papers. You can go to YouTube and search on my name and you can get hundreds of interviews. And uh, I publish a daily web publication committed to fostering well-being called SchwartzReport.net. Stefan, it has been an honor and privilege and so much fun talking to you. And I hope our conversation is that little pebble being dropped in in the lake and hopefully there's some ripples that come out of this uh, out of this conversation that helps the world my friend i appreciate you and the work that you're doing to save to save the world and help the world move forward oh pleasure to do it glad to do it again i want to thank steven so much for coming on the show and sharing all of his research and knowledge with all of us if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 157 And if you've only been listening to this over podcasts and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.